Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Interviews with business owners, industry leaders, and tax experts sharing how the IC Disc can benefit your bottom line profits. Check out the show notes at icdiscshow.com. This show is brought to you by the IC Disc Alliance. Discover how the premier IC Disc consulting firms support you at icdisc.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. John Walker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. So I, I appreciate you making time to, to be on the podcast. And I know it took us a few tries, but I'm glad we were finally able to get it all to, to coordinate. So I'm a, a sequential learner. So let's start at the beginning, if we may. So are you a native Houstonian? I am not. I'm, I'm originally from Ohio. I was actually born in Cleveland, but I typically don't admit that. <laughs> and moved as a one-year-old to Illinois. And then as a second grader, moved to New Jersey. And then in fifth grade, moved to Ohio. And as a consequence, my accent was made fun of in New Jersey because it was Midwestern. And then it was made fun of in fifth grade in Ohio because it was East Coast. And <laughs> somewhere along the line with all that, I've lost most of my accent of any type. So people can't really tell where I'm from. <laughs> yep. That unless, is it. Unless I've been drinking too much and then I then people <laughs> think I'm from Kentucky, but that's a different <laughs> Well, so you ended up, did you end up spending formative years in Cincinnati then or just go to college there? Well, in between Cincinnati and Columbus in a small town with, uh, I'm told, the longest name in the city name in the country, Washington Courthouse. Okay. That was the name of the city or the town? Yeah, there was another town called Washington in Ohio to differentiate it. One was a county seat and one was not. So, Oh, okay. So there you go. So, so, so you spent more time in Southern Ohio than Northern Ohio. Oh, for sure. For sure. Does that mean your sports, does that mean your sports team allegiance tends to gravitate South as well? Oh yeah. When we moved back to Ohio, my, my dad never forget for, forgave Art Modell for firing Paul Brown. And when he moved South and took over the Cincinnati franchise, our family, of course, was Bengals fans. And then we were naturally Cincinnati Reds fans. Awesome. Well, that was the Reds were a great team to root for in the 70s. I oh, yes. certainly. So I'm from the, the other end of the Midwest, Iowa, which a lot of folks not from the Midwest, I think they're the same state because, you know, their four letters start with a vowel and with a vowel somewhere up there where it's cold. Well, um, and if you don't enunciate clearly, yeah, they all run together. And that's true. Can't tell, so. Yeah, kind of like that. That just across the river from you in is Louisville across the river from Cincinnati? No, Covington is, but it's only about 90 miles away. But that's a good one. I have fun with, you know, in terms of pronunciation. I ask people how you pronounce that. And some people will say, you know, Louisville or, you know, and I say, no, the people from there get to tell you how to pronounce it. And the way they pronounce it is Louisville. Right. Yeah. It's I when I was in there once and I heard the people pronounce it. It's they almost contract it to a single syllable. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Well, and it's like it's like the expression y'all, right? I've I spent a bit of time, which we may get to, in Birmingham, great city. And there y'all doesn't even have a, a, an apostrophe. Okay. <laughs> but in Kentucky, it is two distinct words, you all. Interesting. And I actually use that, even though I'm not really Southern, I use that because it's a lot more friendly and easygoing than the Northern you guys. Yes. Which now has got some gender issues, but. Sure. Or the, in Pittsburgh, is that word Ewans or. Yeah. So yeah, that Louisville, it's interesting. It's almost like the accent is on the first part of the word, the Lou. And then it's like they lose interest by the time they get to the end of the word. It just kind of drifts off. Yeah. Yeah. All runs in together. Okay. So so you end up going undergrad to the University of Cincinnati. Is that correct? Yep. Bearcats. At the Bearcats? Yep. Okay. And then you somehow ended up up in Columbus to go to law school, I guess? Yeah. I you know, applied a bunch of different ones and Ohio State was a good choice. And it turned out to be... For what I do, actually, it turned out to be a great choice. It's not, you know, typically 
uh, perceived to be one of the top schools. Uh, you know, you got all your Ivy League and uh, Stanford, Northwest, University of Chicago, stuff like that. Certainly uh, University of Texas. But uh, as it turns out, most people have heard in one sense or another the Uniform Commercial Code. Yeah, the UCC. Exactly. And, you know, if you're going to be a business lawyer, contracts is very important as well. And in, in law school, you have three major law book publishers. And I don't remember their names. I remember the colors. One was red, one was blue, one was brown. And as it turns out, for both the Uniform Commercial Code and the contracts core first-year textbooks, we had as professors, the three authors who are writing those main contract books at Ohio State. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my commercial law background, call it, in contracts in the UC were from the, you know, the epitome of who teaches those courses. So I got a very strong background. And so later in my 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 travels, I got a master's in tax law from New York University, NYU. I was working in the uh, the World Trade Center before it came down, Wall Street. And in that particular office, the firm was Brown and Wood, later was bought by Sidley Austin out of Dallas. You were not allowed to hang your shingle, your uh-huh. graduate degrees in your office. And the reason was, or the logic was, that they didn't want people kind of competing with each other as to what those shingles were. You know, were you double Yale? Were you double Harvard? Did you have Columbia in there? And you know, it's kind of a, a little, little bit intimidating because you have all the mystique about those degrees. But what I quickly learned is with my background that I could compete with anybody. And those fancy degrees didn't mean a darn thing. It, what really mattered is how you could think about business problems and then apply what you'd learned. So mm-hmm. that was kind of an interesting experience because there were double Yales, double Harvards and all that kind of stuff. So, Sure. Well, and you're also a CPA as well. Yes, yeah, so that made me a little bit unique in that world as well. So, and then the, you know, the other, you know, fun credential that actually comes into play with what I do in law is I'm also a finance degree undergrad. Okay. Yeah. So, and it's interesting. And I don't normally look at this because if I'm going up against another business lawyer, I typically don't care what their background is, where they're from, what firm. It's just, to me, is not relevant, but it's surprising how many people end up in business law that don't really have a background in business. I had worked for several entrepreneurs kind of going through the you know, high or excuse me yeah high school and and college and uh, you know then I had these other credentials. I've also got the unique experience in my various travels that a lot of lawyers don't have. I've held a series 7 and a series 6. I've also you know securities licenses. I've also yeah. held a life and health license and a property and casualty license. So um I don't I don't do those things but it makes me very knowledgeable and very conversant with the concepts. And so when a client comes to me and has a business problem, I can go through a range of areas and topics and be conversant with them, give them advice and then recommend people who actually are the specialists in that area. And that's one of the things I can offer to my clients. I tell them that if you've got a problem and it really doesn't matter what kind of problem it is, if you don't need help with it, ask me. If I don't do it, and I only do you know very narrow thing, which I'm sure we'll get to, I generally am one degree of separation from at most from knowing somebody who does know somebody who's an expert in what you need. And so, in the last week, I had a client that had a really horrible experience with a remodeling situation. They had a bunch of flood damage with mold problems, and they had a contractor that went two thirds of the way into the project and then ghosted them, just disappeared. So they got their house in disarray. They've prepaid for materials. They've got a mess. So they really need two things. Number one, they need somebody who can complete the project. I don't do that. Yeah. And I don't directly know somebody for what they needed because it's pretty comprehensive. But I had a list of people. I had commercial lease brokers. I had construction lawyers. I had residential real estate brokers. And so I was able to come up with a list for this person. This was actually was not even my client. This was trying to help out a client of mine, a wealth advisor who had the client who had all the problems. So I, came, I see. Yeah. So I came up with a list of contractors for them to interview and select to complete the project. And then uh, there was several hundred thousand dollars involved. They need, needed legal advice on how to navigate this problem and what to do. And because of my travels, I had a good sense of what we were talking about, but I know that construction law is its own specialty, certainly in, in Texas. And I had I I had some ideas on litigators and construction lawyers, 
But this one was very specific because it was residential and there'd been some attempts to remediate it and yada. So I needed to search around and ask some people because it was a very specific problem. Came up with the attorney with a precise specialty of helping homeowners. He does other construction law, but helping homeowners with this specific Mm -hmm. problem. Set up a conference call actually yesterday, went through the problem and the facts. I didn't bill for my time. I wanted to understand a bit more about this problem because it's not all that uncommon when you think about it. And it ended up being a great result for the client. They got a bunch of background. They're going to get a proposal for the engagement. It may be simple. It may be just a demand letter, but it may be a lawsuit. So, you know, it kind of comes into play that way. I had to, I had okay. a client one time ask me, why do you do what you, we'd already talked about his problem. And I gave him, you know, the range of how that might be handled. And then actually, it's actually a good question for any professional, you know, what kind of, what's your background? And I said, well, and I gave him basically what we just talked about. And I said that all I've ever really been interested in is deals, transactions. That's really the only thing that's ever interested me. And my travels have kind of given me a unique background to process that information. I said, so I'm I'm basically a deal lawyer. That's what I do. That's what I like to do. That's what I'm good at. I said, if you made me practice, if you made me practice family law, I'd take a short walk off, a long walk off a short pier. Sure. Yeah, I can, I can certainly understand that. Well, well, let's, uh, I want to get into some more client examples in a bit, but help with my, uh, my chronology here. So uh, what brought you to Houston and when was that? Well, it was 2005. I've now lived in Houston longer than any place I've ever lived. And my wife is another Midwesterner. She's originally from Minnesota. She's been down here a few years longer than I have. I met her down here. And we both love it. We just, we love Houston. We think it's a great city. We do not miss the cold. We whine about it like we were from here. We we actually refused to visit our in-laws, particularly her in-laws, because this last season, they had multiple weeks below zero. Excuse me. Yeah, below zero, not below freezing, below zero minus net numbers and literally feet, you know, feet of snow feet of snow, you know, two, three feet, all that sort of stuff. But I came down here for a job and it actually ends up being very relevant to what I do because it was the fourth uh, industry consolidation that I was participating in. So, and it's going on now in different industries where you have a large company, maybe it's private equity, maybe it's public, and they're buying up lots of mom and pop shops, closely held family-owned businesses, They're bringing them together, consolidating the revenue, getting efficiencies, lowering the cost structure, lowering the overhead. And that makes a great stock and a great story for the market. I had been in four of them. And so I was doing high volume acquisitions, which are deals and which is what I like. Mm -hmm. So I was brought down for my fourth one. And it was actually even more complicated than that because what they specifically wanted me to do were hospital joint ventures. This this company was a U.S. oncology. Okay. Yeah, so it's a you know, oncology practice management company in a lot of markets. The big oncology center is in a hospital, and in order to get some of that business, they needed to create a joint venture. Very complicated things, and so that was going very well until about two thousand and eight. Market crashes. Everybody knows that. They're they took themselves private. They're trying to go public again, and they were just having a horrible time because of the market. And finally, the people that had backed them said, "You know what?" We are the largest purchaser of oncology drugs in the world, have all kinds of leverage, all kinds of purchasing efficiencies. We're really a drug play. So they sold themselves to a drug wholesaler, McKesson. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, at that point, if you're a drug play, you don't really need a deal guy doing complicated deals. So sure. you know, that was fine. We, we exited out of there. And tried my hand, you know, more experience as a in business as a businessman. Had a couple of uh, startups and a couple of venture capital sort of things going on. And uh, as these things go, they they didn't quite gel, at least gel to my satisfaction. So I said, you know, I've got all this deal experience. Why don't I open up my own shop? And beginning of 2012, I took my fourth bar exam in 2011 because I'm a masochist. But opened up my own practice at the beginning of 2012, and that's what I've been doing since. That's awesome. And one of the many things I love about Houston, my wife's a native Houstonian. You know, I got here as quick as I could in 1987. But one of the things I love about it is how open and receptive the business community is to outsiders. It is. Which I've found to be, I found to be much more open than the smaller communities I've lived in. 
right? You hear about, you know, small town hospitality. I found in a lot of ways, small towns are very insular and kind of closed outsiders. My joke is I lived in a town once that, uh, that after 20 years of living there, they would still call our house the old Johnson house. Or, I mean, this was hypothetical. We weren't there 20 years, but that's kind of, you oh. know, just how insular. That, that would largely describe Cincinnati, believe it or not. Cincinnati yeah, and it's because these towns that don't have big growth, right? Like Columbus is probably more like Houston because of all of its growth, but Cincinnati probably... If you go down the street, 90% of the people in Cincinnati probably are from Cincinnati, I'm guessing. We call it, back when I lived there, the Swallows returning to Capistrano because you'd have the kids grow up there, go to college, maybe someplace else, but you know, might be local, might be uh, Miami University, which is just up the up the street or, or Ohio State, something like that. And then maybe take a job in Chicago or Cleveland or something, but they would come back to Cincinnati. And it was, I used to make fun of it until I ended up for no good reason doing it three times myself. It just, you know, my story was a little bit different than some, but I had to stop making fun of it. But we love Houston and you're 100% correct about it's open, open, it's receptive. It's hard to find someone like your wife that's a native. I have a handful of people who are natives and it's hysterical to hear the old stories about the Shamrock Hilton and some of the characters. And yeah. Well, I tell when my... I try explaining to my wife, so where I'm from in Northwest Iowa, it's a town of about 80,000 people. And 100 years ago, the population was probably 90,000. And I explained to her that we were there once for a family reunion or something. And she said, why are all the houses so old? And I said, because there's no reason to build new houses when the population doesn't grow. Right. And, And yeah, and that's back in, there used to be a joke in the 80s before you arrived, the joke was anybody with a cell phone and a leased Mercedes could be a real estate developer in Houston. And I always found that to be you know, humorous, but also you know, a kernel of truth. What it was really saying is Houston is wel- welcoming to all comers if you can add value. And yeah, I feel like Houston is still the best kept secret. I agree. And it's funny you tell the cell phone and Mercedes story because last night I was having a drink with a client whose business I sold last April. And he's got a very interesting business. He builds, he fabricates power supplies for all kinds of industries. Very profitable, very interesting business. We were able to sell it. But he was telling a story about how in the 80s, when he was growing up, he had family friends who happened to have been in Houston for a very long period of time. And they were in on the development of Memorial City Mall. And then he named a couple of the Memorial Cities that he was involved in developing and just made tons and tons of money. And this gentleman who was a number of years older than my client said, he said, you should drop this engineering thing because he got a degree in mechanical engineering. And then obviously he was doing what he was doing. But he said, you should get out of this engineering thing and come over and join me in the real estate business. And he told me, you know, he said, that was really sound advice that I did not take way back in the day. You know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm making good money at it. But boy, if I would have joined him at that point in time, to your exact point, you know, he'd have been set. So Yeah, that's so you got to Houston in 05, started your practice about 10 years ago. And so what I find interesting about a lot of attorneys that have got, you know, smaller firms is you ask them what they do and or you ask them, hey, what do you specialize in? Oh, we specialize in everything. Traffic tickets, DWI, family law, buy your company, sell your company, sue somebody. And uh, so I always appreciate somebody who's more narrowly focused. So with that in mind, is it really just as simple as your deal attorney? Does that really it, it, is, it is. It is. But a lot of people don't wouldn't quite understand what that means. So, and I agree with you about the other approach. There's a reason for it. It can be tough to generate business. Sure. You know, I've I've been very fortunate with what I do and how I do it. Is I network pretty well. The what are we? Th- you know, almost three weeks into the year, I've probably had, and I'm you know I'm not that big of a shop. I probably had you know eight new clients come in, and they've one was uh, you know over the internet, and the other seven were direct referrals from people I do business with. And you know, so I think that's you know the difficulty in developing that and understanding how to do that and all that, I think is what holds some people back. And so they do take literally that anything walks in the door, they're door lawyers. What I do in developing my referral network 
is I will only refer for you know legal to another you know very narrow specialty because mm-hmm. I give them what they do and I want them yeah. to give me back what I do and not send it someplace else. I can, for example, typically refer or typically don't refer business to litigation business to business litigators because typically they try and do what I do because it's a feeder for their litigation practice. Yeah, It's kind of productive for me. But for me, it's simple as a deal. And to me, a deal is anything that involves money and two business people or, you know, two uh, two people trying to make uh, make some money in a capitalist economy. So if someone asks me what I do, what I tell them is I'm a transactions lawyer. So I do basically anything that's related to a contract, you know, joint venture, master service agreements, NDAs, that sort of stuff. But I also buy and sell businesses. And, you know, that pretty much covers the waterfront. I don't do construction. I don't do real estate. I don't do litigation. But if it's if it's a business and it doesn't involve those areas, either I do it or I can find somebody who can, who can help you do it. Yeah, no, I love the approach. And that's our approach we've taken with our IC disc practice. Because it's interesting when you look at a big firm, whether it's a CPA firm or a law firm, their pitch is we have all of these specialties all under one roof, right? That's, you know, it's this integrated approach. But what I find, at least in the accounting world, is that the client's actually better served if they have a firm that does only IC disk. And that firm knows a firm that does only research and development tax credits, and also as a firm that does, you know, very narrow. And we, I find that my kind of loose network of tax expertise is that can that combination of those independent firms can run circles around large, you know, consult or you know, integrated firms. Is, have you found that to be the case in the legal space too? I think. I think so. You know, if it kind of depends on what you're talking about, and then you've got the randomness of the particular professional that you're encountering. But if you find somebody who's got a more narrow specialty, you're more likely to get somebody who's got deep enough experience that they can really handle your problem in the most efficient and most effective way. The bigger firms, it's a little bit of hit, hit or miss. And you know, they want you to use their people because it indirectly benefits them one way or another. But that isn't always the best solution. My my problem with, quote, doing deals, and let's talk about buying and selling businesses, as I call it, it's the the Wall Street phenomenon. And Wall Street meaning the movie, Michael Douglas, right? Mm -hmm. Gecko. And the problem is that for most people, when they encounter somebody buying or selling a business, certainly for the client, it's the biggest thing they've ever done. Mm -hmm. You're selling a business, you likely have never sold one before. And the money you're going to make on that transaction will dwarf most anything else you've done for most sellers. So if they've got a, an accountant, you know they don't want to turn loose of that, even if they have no idea what goes on in due diligence. Their tax person doesn't want to turn loose of it, even though they don't really understand how, the finer points of asset allocations as it's reported on your tax return. They don't understand how to structure the transaction. They don't understand how to advise the client on how to set themselves up so that they can maximize their after-tax income after they sell, all that sort of stuff. The lawyers, you know, if you've got a fellow who's got a brother-in-law who's a probate attorney, he wants involved in the deal. Sure. It's exciting. And typically it's more exciting than what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Criminal lawyers. I, you know, it's crazy. And what you really want, and it's hard to find, is you want someone like me. And I'm a little bit unique because of this you know, crazy background that's got all these different areas of focus. I don't do them all, but I understand them all. And by the time you're done, you know, you'll be covered by the right set of specialists. The problem I have is that I'm typically brought in too late. The time to bring me in is when you first, that you want to sell your business. You know, if you come to me when you're first approached, that's good too. What typically happens is they've already signed something. Yeah, in the NDA, and they don't know what they should disclose it or when or to who, or they've signed with a broker and they have no idea whether the broker is any good, what he's supposed to do, what he can do, and whether they're yeah. going to get their money's worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times they go all the way up to the point and have already signed the letter of intent. Right. People don't like to bring in a lawyer too early in the deal, and the excuses typically are: is one, they're typically are the most expensive guy in the room, and that's often true. And the other is that they're perceived as deal killers. Yeah, the that they're perceived as deal killers is they're typically brought in after the letter of intent is signed. Right, is being asked to to paper a bad deal, 
And if they yeah. brought him sooner, he knows what he, what, what he could have done. I've got two deals on my plate right now that are falling in exactly that category. How soon, in a perfect world, say you're selling a business that's got, say, a $20 million enterprise value, and they have some time, right? They don't have like a medical issue. How far in advance do you think they should start talking to you? Three, three to five years, seriously. Yeah, that's and what I've heard. Well, and what I tell people is that I'm really cheap on the front end. I'm cheap because I want to develop that relationship mm-hmm. so that when they get close and really do need me, they're comfortable with me, they trust me, and they'll make sure that I'm brought in at the right time. So a lot of times, you know, in the early stages, what can I contribute? Well, they need to start developing their team. How do you know if your business is ready to sell and what you need to do to maximize its value when it is time to sell? I've got those people. How do you know whether or not what you're going to be able to sell the business for is going to be adequate for what you really want to do? You know, $20 million, eh, I'll cover most people. But if you're dealing with a smaller enterprise and right now your enterprise value may only be a million bucks, well, a million bucks is a lot, but will that replace the income that you're actually pulling out of the business? Will that be enough to actually set you up with the kind of retirement you and your wife really want? Who's that? Well, that's a wealth advisor. You need Mm -hmm. to figure out what that number is, and then you need to work with the other specialists to get you t- to grow your business to that number. It's a team effort. What do I do in that that uh, that realm besides connecting with the right kind of people that's going to put you in that situation? I'll also be taking a look, you know, do you have intellectual property that needs to be protected? Do you have key employees mm-hmm. that need to be bound by non-competes and non-solicits and NDA? I'll be looking at all those sorts of stuff because you want to protect yourself now and you want to be able to transition and be able to give your buyer comfort that you've covered all those bases. It also portrays you as a serious, thoughtful businessman. And that's who people want to buy. They don't want to buy yep. something run the whole operation by the seat of the pants. <laughs> yep. No, that's for sure. So what's, what would you say? Well, so several questions. One is, do you do more sell-side representation or is it kind of 50-50? I tend to do more sell-side. Yeah, that's typical. Someone who's got enough money to buy typically already has a relationship with a lawyer. Now, their problem, which they don't understand, except for the people who are going to listen to this podcast, is that even if they've got a lawyer, they need to understand whether or not that lawyer or even that firm has somebody with the right kind of experience to do their deal. You know, mm-hmm. in case, besides those credentials, doing these publicly, you know, traded consolidations, I've done over 400 deals in my career, all different shapes, sizes, industries, all kinds of twists and turns. And that's who you really want advising. I just had a client, I was asked to come in and advise the CEO of a very large company with respect to his negotiations on his employment contract and, and you know, how he was going to participate going forward with the buyer. He actually didn't own any of the company. He only had a phantom stock. Okay. Yeah. And the sole owner already had representation and the company had representation. So in advising the CEO, I said, look, here's how this needs to go. You don't want to be negotiating your employment contract yourself. You in this enterprise, it was a 300 million value company. Wow. Dollar value company. Yeah. Big, very big transaction. I said, you are essentially like an MBA, you know, Hall of Famer. And the deal doesn't work unless you come along with the team. It's no different than coming into buying a professional, you know, sports team and you want to make sure you lock down your marquee players. You are the marquee player because you're the guy who's built this company for the owner over the, you know, past decade and a half. You're the one that that going forward the deal isn't going to make unless you come along you effectively need an agent and you need to treat your agent like the NBA a star does, which is let him do all the talking while you glad hand and, you know, show off your skills, but you need to let, let the agent do the, you know, do the hard talking on what the terms are. I said, that's, Mm -hmm. and then I said, so that worked out real well, but then I said, "Uh, how many times have you sold a business? Right. Right. This is a pretty big transaction. I said, well, I know you've got counsel, but you're not going to want to read the 100 plus pages of transaction documents to make sure everything's going right. I said, I'm going to need to trace through the documents to make sure that your deal traces through these transaction documents correctly, because it's not just the employment contract. He was getting an equity position in the new company, 
so on and so forth. So I said, I will be looking at those and as I see something, you know, with my, my uh, transactions hat on, I'll give you what I see so you can go back to the lawyers. And as it turns out, there were a couple of squirrely things because the private equity firm that was buying the company, they were doing some things that were a little bit different, a little bit out of the ordinary. And there were some things in the document weren't spotted up front. So I sent emails to my client, the CEO on the side. I said, now I'm sending this to you alone, even though I have everybody's name, all the other lawyers. I said, you handle this how you want. You can either forward this or you can just speak to it. And if you want me to get on a phone and include me in email chains, all that's good. And as it turns out, the uh, was going to pay his CEO's legal fees anyway. It's just as part of the deal, a little bit of a you know extra benefit. So my additional work specific for the CEO or for the overall transaction wasn't coming out of his pocket anyway. I ended up being included in everything and ended up coaching a selling CEO on a $300 million deal, even though I'm this you know smaller firm. It was a national firm that I was weighing in on and saying, hey, if you guys thought about this, I would suggest approaching it this way. So it worked out really well. So, Oh, that's a great story. So as I understand in this situation, so your client was actually the CEO? Yes. So that was who your fiduciary duty was to. And that's an interesting dynamic because he only had the phantom stock. He had, it sounds like, limited leverage as far as the ultimate transaction and his role in the new company. Is that right? Well, I would think that, except that he was, he was, he was the Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, he, you know, he ran everything. Everybody reported to him. The, the 100% owner had been in the business 15 years ago, found this guy, trained him, and then had stepped back. So the business doesn't work post-purchase if this guy doesn't come on board. And so initially, we talked about things about, you know, his non-compete. And we talked about the fact that he didn't really want to roll equity in because he didn't necessarily trust the format he was going to he was going to participate. But as he got to know the people and got you know more into the deal, he became more acclimated and more accepting of, of what was going to go on. But at the end of the day, there were certain you know lines that he had drawn, and I knew where they were. And if I needed to push the buttons, I could. But they also needed they also needed to understand that you know he had a line across which he wasn't going to be pushed. So yeah, well, that's an interesting dynamic because I know enough about. I know, I know enough about deals, mostly from listening to the Built to Sell podcast with John Warlow. Great, great podcast. Yeah. And I've listened to hundreds of episodes. So I feel like I've kind of had, you know, a sort of an advanced course in, in deal doing. But yeah, but it would seem like, does that buyer, if that key employee was not locked up with an employment agreement, a non-compete, that business had much less value. Wouldn't do, If they didn't have him, they wouldn't do the deal. Then to your other point, they would be less likely to do it and negotiate a lot harder if they weren't able to tie him down. Now, he knew at the end of the day, he was going to get tied down. But you know, we'd also put him in a position where he didn't have a non-compete, just laziness, sloppiness, whatever, with the selling company. But he had a provision in his phantom stock agreement that he wouldn't be required in, in the sale to accept a non-compete that was more restrictive than what he'd already signed. And he hadn't signed one. No, so he made sure he did. So, and it was, you know, it was, in my view, and, you know, I've got some background, it was something that would be at least reasonably acceptable to any buyer. They came back and they wanted, and so we, you know, we tweaked it here or there, but they knew going in because they'd already read the Phantom Stock Agreement that, and they already had his agreement that they were, that he he didn't have to sign anything more restrictive than that. So that gave us a little bit of leverage, you know, but that, you know, again, that's something that many lawyers would miss. And it's the kind of detail that is critical in doing a deal. I tell people that what happens a lot of time with people who aren't experienced deal lawyers and who aren't really, you know, really, you know, really kind of enjoy the minute is the one side or the other will, will suffer quote deal fatigue. And, and I never do. I had a transaction one time where, you know, it was me and I was going against another national firm and the lawyer on the other side kept crawfishing back on the terms. And the terms are very specific. They're very specific in a letter of intent. It involved technology. I represented the technology guy. He represented the money guy. It was a new company and this was the, uh, the company agreement. And the question was what was going to be included in terms of the reach of technology 
and what wasn't. And this other lawyer kept trying to pull stuff back in. And I kept, you know, kept, you know, you know, deleting his language. And we probably went eight rounds. And finally, by the time we got to the end of it, he said, well, I don't dis- I don't agree with your point, but I'm tired of arguing about it. So I'll let you have it. And that's when I knew, <laughs> that's when I knew I had him. And in that particular deal, I'll tell you crazy prices. I quoted 10,000 to do this negotiation and do the company agreement. And I said, it really shouldn't take that much, but it depends on the other side, but I don't know what's going to go on. So I'm going to have to try you charge you by the hour. I'm expecting it shouldn't be, you know, more than 10,000. Because of the way this other attorney behaved and the way that he was trying to negotiate, that $10,000 turned into forty-eight. Wow. $48,000 for a company agreement and for an LLC. And three days after we closed and the client paid my fee, he called me up and said, hey, I got some great news. I said, what's that? He said, you know that technology we were working with? I said, yeah. He said, Anderson wants to do a joint venture with me to use my technology for some cancer research. I said, that's fantastic. I said, aren't you glad you paid me $48,000? He said, why is that? I said, had I not done what I did the way I did it, that aspect of your technology would have been in the deal and you'd had to share this MD Anderson mm-hmm. deal with your other partner. That's awesome. So do you also handle like the formations of entities as well? Yes, I do that. And I, I should have mentioned that up front as part of what I do as a business transactions lawyer. I also form companies and then I handle business disputes between co-owners short of litigation. If it goes to litigation, I'll refer it out, but there's a lot I can do in advance of litigation. But the reason you want me to do the formation is so you don't have to pay me to settle the disputes. If you do it yourself, and this is for more than one person, right? For one person, that's easy. That's not a problem. Typically don't, unless a bank requires it, give them the four, you know, the formal company agreement and the bank resolutions. Some banks, typically the big money center banks will require that. But if, if it's a regional bank and they have a relationship with a lot of times they don't, because I say, if, you know, if you're a sole owner, who are you going to get in an argument with? Yeah. If you do have that argument, then we're talking about another professional. It's a mental health care professional. And that's a whole different thing. But if you got two more people, it needs to be done right. It needs to be done by attorney. It is not a do-it-yourself project. You'll probably pay me if it's a real venture, anywhere between five to $10,000, depending on the complexity of the number of people, so on and so forth. And you want to pay someone like me to do that, because if you do it yourself or you do it with your brother-in-law, the criminal lawyer, and they screw it up, it'll be 10 to 20x for me to fix it. And I've actually got an example of 100x. Wow. Yeah. So it's not a do-it-yourself project. And then I handle the business disputes. And it's typically because the company wasn't formed right in the first place. Didn't do the buy-sell or do it right. You know, those sorts of things. No, thank you for that clarification. So as we are rounding the home stretch here, what, if you really had to just, summarize it like in one sentence, what would you say, you know, is your either competitive differentiator or kind of makes you unique in in the space? Is it your number of deals you've done? Yeah, it's the number, it's the number of deals I've done and the breadth of them, but it also includes my tax knowledge. I don't hold myself out as a tax lawyer, even though I got the credentials, because I don't want to do all the reading that you have to do. Uh, but I, you know, I've got when I've got a specific question or specific, you know, issue, I've got great people that I go to, but I can issue spot like nobody's business because of this background. And so I will advocate for things and spot things in deals that an average lawyer won't. Most deal lawyers won't touch tax issues won't touch finance issues, won't touch accounting issues, and they'll disclaim it. They're not comfortable with it. I am. I got a guy right now, a great client. He's got a very niche business, so he doesn't need a broker. There's only so many people that he can sell to, and he's in conversation with them. He was referred to me during the pandemic because he was approached by a buyer, and he didn't know what to do. And I had a very good referral source say, well, you need to talk to John. He's hired me for two years, paying me my hourly rate to coach him on how to sell his business. And it's been about how you present, what information you share, when, what do you talk about? Um, we're at the point now where he has just submitted his, his uh, financial information and he's he is waiting for a letter of intent and offer to come back, a first offer. 
But I said, before you send your financials, send them to me first. And so he did. And we walked through them. And I went through the line by his P&L, asking him hard questions, duplicate expenses, employees who weren't going to remain post-closing, duplication of software, you know, deleting legal and accounting, because this is a bigger company that's going to merge them in, all that sort of stuff. And by the time he was ready to submit his financials with adjustments, I doubled his EBITDA, which you know would double his purchase price. Right. Now, there isn't another lawyer that I know that would have done that. He would have had to pay somebody else. He had a very good, unusually so, a very good inside bookkeeper controller, but she didn't know this stuff. He would have had to go to some other person and they wouldn't have done it any better job than I would have. And it made it's going to make a big difference to his sale price. So that's, okay. you know, that's an example. The What I tell people is that you need to talk to, if you're doing a deal of any sort, but t- particularly a buyer or a sell, you need to talk to me or somebody like me, because if you don't, you will leave money on the table, guaranteed, because I used to get paid very well by these public companies to pick the pockets of small, yeah. small sellers. Yeah. That's the fact. If you don't use someone like me that's got my experience, you will have more stress than you would otherwise, you will have a higher likelihood that your deal won't close. I tell my sellers, de rigor, every seller, that something's going to come up in your deal that'll be unexpected, that can't be predicted, that you will think is catastrophic and will crater your deal. It'll never close. You'll never make this dream amount of money that you're already thinking about how you're going to spend. And it'll happen in every deal. And I cannot tell you what that will be, but there's one in every deal. Happens every time. And all I can tell you is that when I encounter it, the odds are I will have seen something like it. But regardless, I will figure out a way to handle it and we will still close because I always close. The lawyer weasel words are, I always close. I always close a deal that my side wants to close and I've never failed not to close. Okay. That's something that always happens. Is something crazy. I've seen key tams pop up in the middle of deals. I've seen an arrest for money laundering in the middle of a deal. It's, you know, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. Always happens. But that's so why you that, want someone like me. So it sounds like the fact pattern where you really are extraordinarily uniquely qualified is a sell side deal where they're selling to like a roll up, a consolidator, somebody who buys a lot of companies and has, you know, lots of experience at doing this. And you're trying to even the playing field. Is that that's one, but it's, it's you know, but that's a particularly unique specialty. I've got a couple right now and of those type, and I'm having some problems because their format, the way that they're executing the deals is, you know, quite frankly, not the way that I did it four times for four public companies. And I've had to tell the business development guy and the attorneys, look, this other fellow who's running the deal for the company, not the lawyer, but the other guy. I said, look, I did his job for four public companies. I've done more deals in his role than he has. So this is kind of the way this needs to go. You're missing a few things here. And it's a little obnoxious. So I, I use that sparingly, but it does come up. And it's like, look, don't kid a kidder here. I know how this works. <laughs> so I just had a, uh, in, in one of these two deals, They said, oh, we've got form documents and we're not expecting changes and there's some things we can't change. And we've got a hard closing date of such. And we expect to hit it. Otherwise, we're going to have to redo the terms of the deal. And I told him, I said, look, I hear what you're telling me, but if these were standard form documents, you should have given to me a month ago, not inside of 30 days from closing. And number two, my seller will not be jammed against an artificial closing date. So. You want to close this deal? Let's get real here. So as it turns out, their deals, or excuse me, their documents are not clean. They're not, you know, form documents that are, you know, turnkey. They're not. We're spotting errors in them. Like you've got a compensation plan that refers to fringe benefits attached to an employment agreement that refers to fringe benefits. And on the fringe benefit issue, which is not a small issue to your seller who's going to continue on an employment, the two documents are pointing to each other with no detail. Ah, that's just that's sloppy drafting. But you're the big company that literally is doing, you know, tens of these deals. Why am I spotting the flaws in your documents? So don't tell me, you know. So yeah, 
Now, well, the, I always love hearing the stories because that gives kind of for the layperson kind of a better comprehension of what you're talking about. Really? Down to two questions. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it really takes somebody with some extensive background. Um, one of one of these big deals that I recently did it was a 15 million dollar private equity deal. A national firm on the other side, four lawyers all trying to handle the documents. I tried to get them on the phone for a month and a half to handle some issues that we were going round and round on. And I knew I was in sync with my my client and I knew he was in sync with his counterpart, but his lawyers weren't in sync with him. And so I kept trying to get him on the phone. Bottom line was I ended up getting that national firm fired mid oh, wow. In 400 deals, I've never seen counsel fired mid, wow. you know, it's just, you know, my, my little old firm here, you know, doing our thing and we're not doing anything complicated. We're just like, look, this is a business deal. These are business terms. These are business concepts. If you want the deal documents to reflect the business deal, it was that simple. But the, like I said, there's a lot of lawyers doing this stuff and even experienced ones that don't think like businessmen and don't think about the ramifications post-close. When I did all these deals for the public companies, I was known in all four companies for doing the cleanest deals, the one that had the least amount of aisle nine cleanup after closing. To me, that's the hallmark of having done a deal well when you've got sure. that handled and you know when a question comes up and there's a finite ways, a finite number of ways you're gonna you're gonna handle it. Mm-hmm. No, that thank you for adding that. So we're down to our last two questions. Can't sure. believe how the time has flown by. So one is, if you could go back in time and give advice to your 25-year-old self, knowing what you know now, what advice might you give yourself? You know, you can never tell, you know, how the path, you know, ends up. I'm in a position right now where my uh, kind of meandering path is serving me quite well and serving my clients quite well. But I have a particular personality that I've learned over time doesn't belong in big organizations like these public companies, like big law firms. I'm a youngest and it's probably got something to do with that. But I would have told myself, you know, be an entrepreneur, take your skills, apply them for your own benefit, create your own business. Don't go to work for big big public companies. And, you know, that would have been an interesting path. If you believe in alternate realities, I wonder what that one would look like. That's probably the advice. It probably looked just like it does now, except you would have started it sooner. Perhaps. But that's, that would have been, that would have been the advice. Okay. Well, that is sounds like great advice. So here's the last one. Now, this one's a, you know, this one, if it takes you more than a second, you're thinking too long. I just want like gut level reaction. Okay. Green. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry, sorry. Backs or barbecue? Oh, barbecue. Barbecue. Okay. I, so you'll appreciate this. My experience with Tex-Mex was Chi-Chi's. <laughs> okay. And you recognize yeah. So it's a Midwesternized version. Were you a Packer fan growing up at all? I was. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew this. Max McGee, Hall of Famer, seven catches in Super Bowl one, was out mm-hmm. partying the night before, didn't think he'd play. He was an original founder of Chi Chi's. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. But I just, I, you know, people would go. It's, it was kind of the thing back in the day. And I just couldn't get into it. Just didn't mm-hmm. get into it. So do you have a favorite barbecue spot in Houston? Yeah, and I'm kind of cheating. Texas Monthly had a list of the top barbecue. I don't know if you saw that issue a number of months back, but they My they, dad told me about it. Yeah, it's one you should it's one you should get. They do detail on like the top 10 and a little bit more on yeah. the 50, and then they list another 50 all over the state. Number 3 is within about a 10-minute walk from my house, Truth Barbecue on on Wall. Yeah, that is, I really enjoy that one. And uh, yeah, so you're really serious about your barbecue when you have the Texas Monthly list at your hand. That's and, my dad. And, 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 that's you know, like, and you know that the perennial champ, right, is Franklin's, but truth is actually rated higher than Franklin's in that issue. That's what I heard. I'd say the other place that's not too far away that I really enjoy is Killian's. You know, they've got their home cooking restaurant there, like at Washington and Law, maybe. It's across the street from Truth. Oh, you're right. It is. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 We actually have not been in that location. We've been the one down in- Airland. Airland. Yeah. We've yeah. Been, we actually haven't been to the one there for no good reason. That one is real. If you like Southern cooking home style, that place is exceptional. I mean, just 
exceptional. And the barbecue is almost, I don't think they even make it there. They probably just, you know, wrap some brisket and foil and drive them up from Pearland. So I don't think they they smoke them there, but they've got some like world-class chicken fried steak and some good stuff. I, you know, I've, my, heard, I've heard that. Yeah, my go-to, I always come back to my, you know, one of my favorites, and it's always the same meal, chopped brisket on jalapeno cheese bread, Austin baked beans and a piece of chocolate cream pie. And that'd be good company at Kirby. You know, my dad doesn't like them. He says they're too citified for his taste, but I do. I do enjoy good company too. Yeah. We like Jackson, Jackson street. Yeah. Jackson street down by a minute made pretty good. And then uh, we also like Gatlin's. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guy that founded that place was on another podcast of a guy company we helped start their podcast. And that's quite a, they have quite a story. So yeah, yeah they yeah. do. Well, was there anything we didn't cover that you think we should have, John? Any questions I didn't ask you that I should have? Well, how about your contact info? If people want to reach out to you, you're on LinkedIn, right? I'm on LinkedIn and you can get the phone number and contact information off the website, which is walkerlawpc.net. Okay. Walkerlawpc.net. And if they want to find you on LinkedIn, it's John H. Walker. Right. Yep. So if you just type in John H. Walker, Houston attorney, it'll find you. It should. It's the John Walker name is pretty common. Common. Yeah. Yeah. There's other John Walkers in town. Well, that's how I found you. I just, I actually just typed in John Walker, Houston attorney, and it pulled you up. So Um, I'm going to tell you the secret why that works, but don't put this on the podcast. Okay. Well, I will hold on. In that case, I think it's time for us to wrap up our interview. John, thank you very much for your time. This was really a treat. I really I enjoyed it. Enjoy it. And for the listeners that aren't going to hear the rest of the story, I apologize. All right. It's been fun. Thanks, John. All righty. Thanks, David. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-discshow.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.